Welcome to the Peavine Podcast, where each week we bring you the message from our Sunday morning worship service with Pastor Joel Sutherland, so that we can help you apply biblical truth to your daily life. You can always join us in person each Sunday at 8.30 a.m. and 11 here on our beautiful campus in Rock Spring, Georgia. Hey, Judges chapter 6, if you have your Bibles. If you don't, I'm going to put it on the screen just a moment. You can follow with me there. I'm finishing up a series called Little is Much. Today's the last sermon in the series. I want to preach this sermon, You Can Make a Difference. We've been looking at these times in the Bible where God took the smallest of things and he did something incredible with them. We looked in the Old Testament about the woman who had the little bit of oil and, and, and flour in a barrel and God made that last uh, for so long and she fed her whole family with that. We looked at the feeding of the 4,000, how God took a few loaves and a little fish. And so today I want to look at a story in the book of Judges. I'll, I'll tell you where we are in just a minute and it'll, uh, it, it'll, it'll make sense when we get there. And I want to preach this subject, you can make a difference. I read a report this week that said uh, by a professor, Columbia researcher, Sheena Iyengar, who said that every day of your life, you make about 70 decisions a day. You ever wonder why you're so tired? 70 decisions a day. That is spread out over a year, and in a year, that means you will make 25,500 decisions in a year. If you live to be 70, you will make 1,788,000 decisions in a year. Albert Camus, who is a 20th century philosopher, said, life is the sum of all your choices. You put together all of those 1.7 million choices, and that is who you are. The fact is, you're probably worn out after a day long of decisions. That's why in the evening, you and your wife can't muster the energy to decide where you want to eat. It's the 70th decision of the day. I don't care where we eat. You're too tired to make one, but I want to tell you there is one decision that should energize you this morning, and that is when you make a decision that you are going to live your life for Jesus. Every born-again child of God needs to make up their minds, decide, make a decision that you will live your life for Christ that you will try to make a difference for the kingdom, that you will dig in and help serve others for the glory of God, that you will find your gifts, you will find your abilities, your passions, and you will live purposely for the cause of Christ. That is a decision you have to make. Hey, let's practice saying amen this morning. Ready? One, two, three. Help me preach, all right? Help me preach. There's just one problem when you decide to live for Jesus. The problem is you have an enemy and he's going to crawl up next to you and he's going to constantly whisper in your ear that there is nothing you can do for the kingdom that matters. He's going to get beside you when you come to a church service and God moves upon your heart and the spirit of God gets inside your heart. That, that enemy is going to slip up beside you and he's going to say, well, I'm going to tell you, I don't care what the preacher said. I don't care what you felt. I don't care what God said to your heart. There is nothing you can do for the kingdom. There's no way you can make a difference. Whatever you're going to do is not going to amount to much. So when I decide I'm going to live for God, when I decide I'm going to live for Christ, when I decide I'm going to give my life to Christ, you be sure there's an enemy right beside you that says, you can't make a difference. 
And I know he's there because he constantly whispers that in my own life. And he whispered it to a man named Gideon in our story today. I want to do something a little different this morning. Before I'll be 50% of the way through my sermon before we stand and read. And we'll stand and read in just a moment. But let me, let me tell you the story of Gideon. Let me tell you a story of Gideon. There's so many stories I told somebody after early service, there's 10 sermons in the story of Gideon. I'm going to go back and do a whole series just on his life sometimes. But let me tell you the story of Judges chapter 7. Now, don't look in Judges 7. Just look at me. But in Judges chapter 7, there's a story. We're going to go back and read chapter 6, part of chapter 6 in a moment. But let me tell you about Judges chapter 7. In Judges chapter 7, there, we, we, we are in the book of Judges. Now, the book of Judges requires some explanation. It is in the book of Judges that God has freshly moved Israel into the promised land and God has decided that it's going to be a theocracy. God is going to be the king of Israel. There will be no physical king. And so God has said, I'll be your leader. I'll be your king. You can uh, serve me and we won't worry about a human king. Just follow me. I've been leading you all these years. And so it sounded fairly good to Israel. And so they went with it. In the book of Judges, something happened. In chapter 2, verse 11, the Bible says that all of the generation that had seen God do miracles to get them in the promised land, all of that generation died. There came a day they buried the last one who had seen the miracles of God. And in chapter 2, verse 11, we're told that a new generation rose up and this generation had never seen the power of God. They'd never seen the miracles of God. So when this generation got into power, they rebelled against God. As a matter of fact, the, the, primarily the, the, the false god that antagonized Israel all their days was Baal, and they went heavily into Baal worship, and I won't get into all that. It was just immoral, godless worship, and so they went heavily into Baal worship, and so what, what happened was they started worshiping Baal, and so God would punish them. God would discipline them, and you know, the Bible says that, that that'll happen, and so, so they went into sin, and God disciplined them, and he disciplined them through hardships, through persecution, and he caused them to be carried off captive into a foreign land or to be captive even in their own land. And they would be in captivity for a while and they would begin to be in slavery and they'd begin to cry out to God to rescue them. And God would send a person, a judge, and the judge would come with a message of repentance and deliverance. And the judge would say that if you will repent and turn back to God, God will deliver you. And so the children of Israel would repent and they would turn back to God. And God would use that judge to deliver them out of the hand of whoever was holding them captive. And that happens early on in the book of Judges. And it happens again and it happens again and it happens again. The same story happens over and over again. A generation comes to power who doesn't know God. They rebel against God. They turn from God. God disciplines them, puts them in that captivity. They repent. God sends a judge to preach a message of uh, repentance and a message of deliverance. They repent. God delivers them. And then they go back and they're free. And then it starts all over again. And the entire book of Judges is Israel finding God, rebelling against God, falling into captivity, hearing the message, turning back to God, being free, and then rebelling. And the process starts, oh, it's a big circle in Judges. It happens over and over and over again. You say, preacher, that is so ridiculous that they would live that way. Uh-huh, uh-huh, except that's what you do too. Right? It tends to be the story of my life too. It tends to be that we live that way too. That, that we, 
We, we find God, we know God, we celebrate our freedom, and then all of a sudden, while we're celebrating our freedom, we kind of get used to the blessing God gives us. We rebel against God, we get into sin against God, we turn our hearts from God, and God disciplines us because the Bible says, whom the Lord loves, he chastens. You say, preacher, I, I, I've been living a rebellious life for years, and everything's fine with me. Listen, that only means one thing, you are not a child of God. Because whom the Lord loves, he chastens those who are his, that are his own. And so here's this story through the book of Judges. It's the story of your life and mine. It's the story of the book of Judges. We just, we, we have this issue with staying, um, you know, close to God. And we get to Judges 6, 7, and 8. We have a fresh judge. His name is Gideon. And let me tell you one of his stories. It's the story of the 300. There's been a movie recently called The 300, but this is the first story of The 300. In Judges chapter 7, again, don't turn there, just listen, but Gideon has an army together and they're about to attack a larger army of the Midianites. The Midianites are who have them in captivity and so the Israelites are about to go after them and try to win their freedom and Gideon has assembled an army of 32,000 men. Now they were not allowed to have weapons when they were in bondage and so it's 32,000 men and they're using pitchforks and shovels and a few axes and a couple of garden hose and hoses and they're about to go attack the army of the Midianites and the army of the Midianites according to chapter 8 was 135,000 armed trained strong men and so Gideon's got his 32,000 he's on one side the 135 are on the other and God says, hold on. Before you charge Gideon, you have too many people. Gideon said, God, I'm not good at math either, but we have 32,000. We, we have about one-sixth of their army. They have real weapons, God. We've got hoes. God said, well... You got too many because here's the trouble. If your 32,000 win the battle, they will take glory for the battle and the nation of Israel still won't turn back to me. So Gideon said, what do you want me to do? He said, tell every man who's afraid to go home. Yeah, you're looking at 135,000 men and you're like, am I afraid? Yes, I'll see y'all later. Let me know how it goes. And 22,000 men went home. And so now it's, 10,000 versus 135,000 people. And so Gideon's doing the math and he said, well, guys here, we can do this. Here's the old deal. Each one of us have to kill 13 and a half people on the other side. Like we can do that, right? Easy math. So I just need y'all to man up, muscle up, and I need y'all to get your stuff together. And I yell charge, we're going to attack and just, just do the best you can. We got it. God said, we got it. We got it. So here we go. Three, two, God said, whoa, time out, time out. Give everybody a drink of water before they go. And so Gideon wandered them down to the river. And God said, wait, Gideon, before they start drinking, I want you to divide everybody in two categories. What are the two categories, God? He said, well, people are going to drink one of two ways. And here they are. He said, there's going to be one group of people that get down on the knee and they keep their eyes up and they scoop up water with their hands and they bring it up the mouth and they lap it like a dog. Put all the people who do that, who are alert, who keep their eyes up, put all those people in one category. Now there's going to be another group of people that just bend over like this and they're going to drink water straight from the stream. He said, everybody that does that, put them on another uh, section and divide them up. And when they did that, 
there were 9,700 men who had bent all the way down, buried their face in the stream. There were 300 men who got on one knee, stayed alert, and lapped it out of their hands. And God said, send the 9,700 home. And God said, and Gideon said, God, what do you want me to do? He said, uh, we're going to attack. God, we have 300 men. And God said, they came to Gideon. They said, hey, do you want a sneak peek of the army on the other side? And I'm sure Gideon thought, no. But they said, come on, and we'll show you the army on the other side. They said, went and showed them the army on the other side. It was 135,000 men. Now, I couldn't find a picture of 135,000 people, but I brought a picture of a crowd that is estimated to be 150,000 people. Here here it is. That is estimated to be 150,000 people. So you take off, whittle off 15, and that's basically what Gideon was going against. Now, let me put that in perspective. They're There are 500 plus people in the room now. If I yell charge, 200 of you keep your seat and the other 300 of us are going to attack that mob. I didn't even do the math on that. I don't know how many you got to get rid of, but it's a bunch. So just keep swinging until I tell you to stop, right? Like, here we go. One, two, three. Like 300 of us have to go and whip that mob. And God said, well, here, here, here's what I want you to do, Gideon. I'm going to give you four deadly weapons. All right, God, we got it. What are they? A trumpet, an empty picture of water, a torch, and your voice. God, I've heard me sing. I know it's hard to listen to me sing, but it can't be deadly, can it? <laughs> so they divided them in groups of 100 They surrounded the camp the best they could, and between 10 p.m. and midnight, they went to the edge of the camp, and Gideon said, do what I do, and they blew their trumpets. They took a torch, and they put it in the water pitcher, and they they broke a hole into the, so they made a homemade lamp is what they made. So they blew their trumpet with one hand, they they knocked a hole in the lamp with the other, and they, they yelled out as loud as they could, the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. I love how Gideon snuck his name in there with God's. Like, hey, if this works, one of us is going down in history. Let's see if I can get my name in there. The sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And when Gideon's 300 men blew their trumpets, the Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their sword. Here's the amazing thing. Those 135,000 woke up out of a deep sleep. They just went to bed. They put out all the lights in the camp. And all of a sudden, they look up and they're surrounded by uh, what they think are thousands and thousands of people. There are lights everywhere. There's trumpets. And I guess they're figuring if, if the band has this many people in it and they're attacking, we're in trouble. And the Bible says that the Midianites got up and in their confusion, they killed each other. So all the Israelites had to do is kind of stand back and watch it happen. And the ones that didn't get killed, the 300 chased them out of Israel. When told in chapter 8, of the 135,000, 120,000 of them lost their lives. It was an amazing, amazing story. How a little bit of an army and a few men, good men, God used them to liberate Israel and defeat their enemies. But that's not even the most amazing part of the story. The most amazing part of the story is not the victory. The most amazing part of the story is the beginning. 
in Judges chapter 6. So would you stand with me as we honor God's word by reading it? It's up here on the screen if you want to look with me. The Bible says, Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abyssalite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, Oh my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And were all his miracles which our fathers told us about saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. And then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours. You shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, surely I will be with you. You shall defeat the Midianites as if they were one man. Thank you. You may be seated. So here, here it is, this beginning of the story of Gideon, Gideon, this mighty general. And here's how the story starts off, that Gideon is a farmer in a wheat field and he's working. Gideon is so terrified of the Midianites that he's not supposed to be doing what he's doing. So he's, he's threshing the wheat in private, in secrecy, so the Midianites will not discover him. And the angel of the Lord appears to him while he's hiding and says, the Lord is with you, mighty man of valor. One translation says the Hebrew should be translated this way. The Lord is with you, valiant warrior. I'm sure Gideon gave it one of these. Are you talking to me? Because I'm, I'm cutting wheat, man. I'm no, I've never held a sword in my life. And he said, no, I'm talking to you. Gideon decides he's going to get bold when he calls him this mighty man of valor. And he said, okay, if the Lord is with me, as you just said, why are things so bad with us? And why are we in bondage? And why are we in hunger? And by the way, that's a question we all always ask, right? If the Lord is with me, if the Lord is for me, why are bad things happening to me? That's what Gideon asked. And the angel said, well, I'm glad you asked that question because that's why I'm here. Because the Lord is going to rescue Israel from the Midianites and he's going to use you to do it. And Gideon looked at him and said, uh, uh, no. And here's what he said. He said, how can I save Israel? I am in the weakest tribe of Israel. I am in the weakest family, clan, in the weakest tribe in Israel. And in my own family, I'm at the bottom of the ladder. So I'm in the weakest tribe, in the weakest clan, in the weakest family, and I'm the weakest in my family. I am as low as you go. There are people far better qualified than me. Yet by the next chapter... God has used Gideon to bring revival to Israel and defeat their enemies. Listen, God took the least important, least powerful person in Israel to get the victory and work through. Now, I know the Christian life can be discouraging sometimes. I know that sometimes in the Christian life, here's how we feel. We feel like there is a, there's a special Walk with God that's reserved for the preacher, it's reserved for the pastor, it's reserved for a staff, or it's reserved for an evangelist. And we feel like they have a special walk with God and, and God does things for them he doesn't do for me and they can make a difference and I can't make a difference. And, and God talks to them the way he doesn't talk to me. Listen, that kind of thinking will ruin your life. I want to encourage you today, listen to me, God can use you. 
And it doesn't matter how small you may feel, how unimportant to the kingdom. Listen, you can make a difference with your life. If you will decide to give your life to Jesus, God can take your life and take you places and do things with you and make an impact with you that you never would have thought possible. Let me give you three things to keep in mind that will help you make a difference. Number one is this. Your availability is more important than your ability. Your availability is more important than your ability. Gideon was honest, more than honest about his ability. He said, angel, I have no ability. The theme and the story of the life of Gideon is his inability to believe in his own ability. Now, as important as confidence in life is, it's not the greatest asset. In the service of God, there is one ability that is the greatest ability of all. What is it? It is not sociability. That's important. It's not compatibility. It's not accountability. It's not adaptability. It's not reliability. All of those are important. The greatest ability in serving God and living for Jesus, the greatest ability is availability. Can I say to you this morning that if you're not available to God, no matter what other kind of ability you may have, you are no good for the kingdom of God. Ability without availability is a liability. And if you really want a life that counts, a life that makes a difference for God, here's what I'm urging you today. Be available for the kingdom of God. Be usable for the kingdom of God. If you tell God no, he can't use you. For his kingdom. I know I talk about sports. Sometimes you ladies talk about how much I like. I talk about sports. But it's just the world I live in. All right. So y'all let me do it. All right. Let me do it. We're not far from the NBA season being upon us. It's been a crazy year in the NBA. In the off season. LeBron is a Laker. Cousins is a Warrior. And we're still debating if Curry or LeBron is the best NBA player. Now if none of. If what I just said to you made no sense whatsoever. Raise your hand. That's what I thought. But even those of you that raise your hand, you will know this name in all probability. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. In college, we, he was called Lou Alcindor, but Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was a center for several teams, most notably for the Los Angeles Lakers, and he was one of the 50 greatest NBA players of all time. Do you know that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was the number one scorer in the history of the NBA? He scored 38,382 points. What made him such a great scorer was not just his hook shot, but what else made him a great scorer was he was number two all times in games played. He played 1,560 NBA games. Did you know that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is also number one in the most shot attempts ever taken? In order to score 38,382 points, he took 28,307 shots. Lou Alcindor scored more than anyone else because he shot more than anyone else because he played more than anybody else. It wasn't just his ability that made him great. It was his availability. And I want to tell you, there is something to just showing up and being ready to play. There's something to just showing up and being available. When God called Gideon, Gideon was available. And I want to ask you this morning, how available are you to make a difference? If you want to live a life of God, if you want a life that matters, you make sure you answer when God calls. And say, preacher, I haven't heard God calling me to anything. Good, just volunteer somewhere until he does. It's easier to move 
It's easier to steer a moving car than it is a parked car. So just volunteer. You may want to try something you've never tried. Quit worrying about the abilities you don't have and start looking at the availability you do have. Here's a great thing about the Christian life. God will give you everything you need to do. You need to make a difference with your life except one thing. He won't force it on you. You have to be available for the kingdom of God. How available are you for God to use you? You say, preacher, I'd like to be used by God, but I don't have a great ability. Hey, you do. It's called availability. And if you'll just be available to God, God will do something in you and through you that you could never imagine. That leads me to the second thing we need to understand, that if we're going to make a decision to live for God and make a difference. Number two, I need you to understand that God sees your potential, not your poverty. All Gideon could see was what he didn't have, how he couldn't make a difference. He saw his lack of ability, his lack of resources, his lack of pedigree. So while Gideon was sitting around thinking about what he didn't have, notice how God addresses him. I want you to see it. It's actually kind of hilarious in verse number 12. He says, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor, you valiant warrior. Huh? Gideon has never held a sword in his entire life. Never. God's calling him a mighty warrior, but here's why. God wasn't looking at what he was. God was looking at what Gideon could become. And church, I want you to understand our tendency is to see us as we are. The filter we see is who we are today, but that's not how God views you. God just doesn't view you as you are. He knows how you are. He knows everything about you. But when God looks at you, he looks at you the way he looks at Gideon, and he sees you as you could be. Have you ever seen an old junk car in somebody's driveway? Or do you have an old junk car in your driveway? Maybe, maybe that's, that's you. You might want to take a second look at that because uh, I read just a couple of weeks ago about a legendary Ford Mustang that was... Thought destroyed 50 years ago, and it was found in Texas. It could be worth millions of dollars. It's affectionately called Little Red. It's a 1967 model of a Mustang that was an experimental car that Ford loaned to Carroll Shelby, where we get Shelby Mustangs. And here's what Ford would do. They'd make cars. They'd give them to Shelby, and he would put experimental things on them to see if something worked and aftermarket parts and all that. And so they'd let Shelby develop a Shelby Mustang, and then what he'd been experimenting on would be taken back to Ford, and it would be crushed so nobody would get their hands on it. But there were two, only two Shelby GT500 notchback coupes that were given to Shelby. They were supposed to have been destroyed. He tinkered with them, but one was called the Green Hornet. They thought they were destroyed, but they weren't. About 15 years ago, a man named Craig Jackson found the Green Hornet and restored it, and he's been offered as much as $1.9 million for it. But its sister, its cousin, Little Red, could never be found. Craig Jackson kept looking for it. And what happened was Little Red traded owners a whole bunch of times until it, it wound up in someone's pile of junk yard in Weatherford, Texas, and here it is. That's it. It is a pile of junk. That car, a pile of junk. 
The motor's been stripped out. Parts have been taken off of it. It is literally a pile of junk, except the VIN number confirmed. It is a little red. Craig Jackson bought it and paid what he said was a reasonable price for it. He plans on restoring it, and it, it will be worth more than the Green Hornet. It'll be worth many millions of dollars. I saw a red piece of junk. People walked by that car every day for years and had no idea what they were looking at. They walked by that car and they said, it's a piece of junk. If somebody had offered him a hundred bucks for it, he probably would have taken it, but nobody thought it was worth a hundred dollars. Yet they walked by and they were walking by something that they saw. Listen, no potential in whatsoever, yet it is worth millions of dollars. And here's what I want to tell you today. There are teenagers here today and you don't think you have much to offer God, but I want to tell you, you can make a difference. Only God knows the potential you may have. There are adults here today, and you don't see how God could do anything with your life, but I want to tell you, you can make a difference. Your potential is in God's hand. See, I see a rock, but a sculptor sees a statue. I see a canvas, but a painter sees a masterpiece. I see a pile of junk car, and a collector sees a rare find. I see a pebble, and a jeweler sees a diamond. You may look in the mirror, and you don't see very much, but God looks down from heaven, and he sees someone that can make a difference. Your availability is more important than your ability. God sees your potential, not your poverty. Well, how do we get there? Number three, focus on the master, not the mission. Now, if God had told Gideon in chapter 6 what was going to happen in chapter 7, Gideon would have found a deep, dark hole and stayed in it. So, Imagine if the angel came to Gideon in chapter 6 and said, here's what we want you to do. Gideon wants to raise the biggest army you can. Let's just say 32,000 people. Let's just say you can raise that. We want you to arm them. Now, you don't have any weapons, but give them pitchforks, axes, shovels, and a couple of garden hoes, okay? Now, we're going to take those 32,000, and we're going to send you against 135,000. Now, the 135,000, just to be fair, they're going to have sword shields, armors, and all sorts of weaponry. They'll be better fed and better trained and stronger even than you are. Uh, Hey, one more thing. Before you attack, we're going to trim the 32,000 down to 300. No big deal. Just 300 of you. Eh. One more thing we probably need to tell you. You know that garden hoe? We're going to take that away from you too. And we're going to put you in the band and. I'm going to give you a trumpet, a a pitcher with no water in it, maybe a torch, and we're going to teach you to scream real loud. No big deal. We're going to send you after 135,000 people. You with me? Let's go. Gideon would have said, no, you've got the wrong guy. Here's what God told Gideon, and I love this. God told Gideon this. Surely, verse number 16, surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Here's what he means by that. 
That, that those 300 band members that are going to charge with a trumpet and a pitcher, empty pitcher of water, and a, basically a trumpet, a lamp, and a scream. Those guys that are going to charge, I'm going to be with them. And it's going to be like you're only fighting one man. So it's really going to be 300 versus one. Why? How could that possibly be, God? Here's how it could possibly be. Because it's more important that you walk with me and let me take care of the details than it is that you get all wrapped up in the mission. Don't get wrapped up in the mission. Get wrapped up in the master. The mission wasn't what mattered. It was God he needed to keep his focus on. As a matter of fact, God would work out the details and make the mission a piece of cake. And let me tell you this. When it comes to making a difference for the kingdom of God, here's what matters most. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Don't try to make a difference. Walk with God and let him make a difference through you. If you keep your focus on God, the mission will take care of itself. So here's what you need to do. You don't worry about the mission God may have called for you. You get up today and worry about serving God and loving God. You get up tomorrow and you worry about serving God every day and loving God. You get up every day and the mission, if you'll love God, if you'll serve God, the mission will take care of itself. Close your Bibles, I'm finished. Last sports thing for today. The Atlanta Braves are going to the playoffs. Say yay, yay, yay. If you're a Braves fan, it's fun. I went back on Google. You can search in a specific time period on Google. Don't know if you knew that or not, but I went back and searched March 2018. And I read all the predictions about the Atlanta Braves. The Braves were predicted to win between 74 and 76 games this year, depending on who you ask. 74 to 76, which would have been a slight improvement over last year, but not very much of an improvement. But everybody said if they win 76 games, it has been a wildly successful season. I think the Braves won maybe their 87th game yesterday. They're going to win close to 90. And they're going to, they've, with a week to go, they've, they've locked up the division. Everything's looking great. And I went back and read Fangraphs. Fangraphs is probably the number one sports statistical site on the internet. And Fangraphs said, by the way, every person predicted the Braves would finish fourth in the division. Everybody. I went back and looked at Fangraphs in March of 2018. And here's what it said, that, that they had a 3.7% chance. Of making the playoffs. Three point. Now that's not even winning the division. The win the division would have been smaller. But just making the playoffs as a wild card team. The Atlanta Braves only had 3.7% chance. And so then I went forward. And I began to read all the stories about the Atlanta Braves. Their quotes after games. And you know how uh, a baseball season. A lot of you don't even like baseball. Because it is 162 games. Baseball starts in March and goes through October. But here's how the players described it. And I'm paraphrasing, but here's what they said. They said, we, we just go out on Monday and we play the best, but we go out on Monday and we play the best game we can. And we go out on Tuesday and we play the best game we can. And we go out on Wednesday and we just play the best game we can. And that's all you can do. And we let the score and the standings take care of themselves. 
You can go read all the quotes after games. That's all they said. We're just trying to play the best game we can play. And let the results take care of themselves. Church, do you know how you make a difference for the kingdom? Live a life with purpose? Follow me. Don't worry about trying to make a difference. Worry about going out today and loving Jesus the best way you know how. Then worry about going out on Monday and loving Jesus the best way you know how. And Tuesday, get up and love Jesus the best you know how. And Wednesday, get up and love Jesus the best you know how. Every day, you be as obedient as you know how to be. And every day, you be as holy as you know how to be. And every day, you be as available as you know how to be. And every day, you get in your Bible as much as you can. And you pray as much as you can. And you serve as much as you can. Every day, you just love Jesus a little more. And you'll look up one day and the next thing you know you will have made a difference for the kingdom of God not because you were focused on the mission but because you were focused on the master you make a difference by keeping your focus on the master and let the mission take care of itself Josh come get a song together would you stand with me across the building little as much when God is in it here's what we learn your availability is more important than your ability. God sees your potential, not your poverty, and you focus on the mission, master, not the mission. There's some of you here today. There's some of you here today that need to finally make that decision. Now, follow me. Look this way. I'm not saying you don't come to church. I'm not saying you're not a good person. I'm not saying that you're not trying to love Jesus. But there's got to come a point in your life as a believer when you say, laying aside everything, I've made the decision, I have decided, I'm going to follow Jesus. You say, preacher, I thought you, that happened when you got saved. It's nice if it does, but for most it doesn't. For most, there's got to come a time in your life when you say, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm tired of playing around with Christianity. We tend to stick our toes in the water and not jump all the way in. And that's not what God wants us to do. Romans 12, 1, he said this. Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. It's your reasonable service. It's the least you can do for the Jesus who died on the cross and saved you from hell. Because decide to follow Jesus and live for him. And immediately when you make the decision, the enemy says, you can't do anything for God. Hey, God just needs you available. Hey, God can't use you. Look how you have nothing to give him. Hey, God sees your potential. Hey, God could ask you to go to Africa. God could ask you to preach a sermon. God could ask you to give something to your neighbor. God could ask you, uh, I mean, we go on and on with that. But listen, don't worry about the mission. Get close to the master. When you get close to the master, he can make fighting 135,000 seem like fighting one person. He'll take care of the details if you'll get close to him. Here's what you've got to do. You've got to decide. I'm going to follow Jesus. And I'm going to let him work through me so I can live a life to make a difference. So would you bow your heads with me and close your eyes? If you're here today, no matter what campus you're at, and you don't know Jesus as the Lord and Savior of your life, it is as simple as ABC. A, you've got to admit that you're a sinner and you can't save yourself. You can't earn heaven. You can't be good enough to go to heaven. 
B, you've got to believe Christ died on the cross for your sins and rose again on the third day. And C, you've got to call out to him, confess him as the Lord and Savior of your life. The Bible says, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. And here we've got... We hope that you've enjoyed the message this week, helping you to apply God's word to your daily life. For more information about Peavine, be sure to check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and at our website, www.peavine.org. Thanks for listening.